We're reading Colossians 3, 5 to 11, on page 984. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covenantness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Please keep your Bibles open. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you. <laughs> As Kenny said, if you keep your Bible open, the Colossians 3. Uh, and before we come to that, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that your word is truth. But as we come to it now, Father, we are conscious that left to ourselves, we cannot gain from its study. So we pray that you would come by your spirit, that you would come and illumine our dark minds, that you would come and warm our cold hearts, that you would come and bend our stubborn wills, that, Father, through the reading of your word, through the application of the truth, you would make us the people we ought to be. Do this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are lots of questions that we face in life, and most of them don't really matter. You know, years ago, we used to buy the Times on a, on a Saturday, and there was various columns in it that we used to read, and there was one that always used to uh, draw my attention. And it was called Modern Manners. And what it was, well, people would write in with questions about modern etiquette. About how we should be behaving. And I always used to read these and think, why on earth have you bothered writing in to ask for that question? The, the, the one that sticks particularly in my mind was this gentleman wrote in and said, Dear sir, I'm throwing a dinner party. As you do. And he said, I've got this big question. The question is, should I save Jerusalem artichokes or not? Now, I don't know if anyone here has ever eaten Jerusalem artichoke. I'm getting, no, no, no. You haven't got them down the chippy. They don't do them. No, no, fair enough. Well, I haven't either. But from what I can gather from this letter, they're a bit like a posh version of baked beans. So, nice to eat. But they have unfortunate after effects. <laughs> if I can put it as delicately as possible. And this gentleman wrote in and said, Well, I don't know what to do. Should I not save them? Should I save them and give a warning? Gale warning, I don't know. Give a warning. Or should I save them and just ignore the consequences? What should I do? This has been keeping me awake. <laughs> Fair enough. And there's lots of other questions like that that were asked in this column. But when we come to Colossians, 
this evening, I want us to see that we're going to answer the second most important question in the whole world. What is the first? Well, the most important question in the whole world is how do I, how do you get right with God? If God is grace, which he is, if God is holy, which he is, if God cannot look upon sin, which he cannot, if God is so just that he must punish all sin, how do I, as a sinner, stand before this God? What is there for me to do? That's the question. Put it in lots of different ways. I think the most succinct way it was put was by the, the Philippian jailer who came to Paul in Acts chapter 16 and said, what must I do to be saved? And the answer he gave was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's still the answer today to the most important question in life. It is that our getting right with God doesn't depend on me or on you. It doesn't depend on the church we go to. It doesn't depend on how we behave, on how righteous our acts are. But it all rests on what Jesus has done for us in his perfect life, in his atoning death, in his resurrection. And in the first four verses of chapter 3, Paul's been describing the position of a person who has found the answer to that question. To a person, in other words, who is a Christian. And these first four verses, I don't think Rob used this term, but they're like a spiritual sat-nav. Because they tell us where we are. You know when you get in your car and you switch to, if you have a sat-nav and it comes on, it says, here's a map, this is where you are in the world. And that's what those four verses tell us. If you're a Christian, they tell you where you are spiritually, positionally. They tell you that you're with Christ in heaven. And that was important for these people to know because there were going to be false teachers coming into the church and they were going to come along and say, look, we can offer you something better. We can offer you something more. And Paul is saying, well, look, you're with Christ. You're in heaven. What can they offer that's better than that? You know, this is A1 in top trumps. It doesn't get any better. So he's reminding them of their resurrection. He's reminding them of their refuge in verse 3, that their life is hidden with Christ in God. But of course the problem is, even though that's our position, we don't just have a spiritual set now, we also have spiritual jet lag. I don't know if you ever had jet lag. But you come home from somewhere a long way away on a plane, and you know where you are, you know you're in your home, you know you're in your bed, but come three o'clock in the morning, you're wide awake. Why is that? Because there's this jet lag. So even positionally, you know where you are, your body isn't behaving in the right way. And so it is with us. We can know our position, but we're not living the way we should. So the second greatest question in the world is how do I live the Christian life? And he's going to deal with that over the rest of this chapter, uh, into chapter 4. More particularly today, he's going to deal with the question, how do I overcome sin? And he's going to tell us there are certain things we have to put off. Certain things we have to put away. Later on in chapter 12 and so on, he's going to say there are certain things you have to put on. 
We're going to see three things this afternoon. First of all, a principle that is simple for us to grasp. In verse 5. Secondly, there are some practices that we have to shun. There's two, verse 5, verse 8, there's two lists. And thirdly, we're going to see the preeminence of the Saviour. He calls us all back to see that all of our life is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. So number one, there's a principle. It's there in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So there's a command, there's a call to you and me to effort. And it's important when there's a command to, to effort to see that there in the middle there's the word therefore. Now back, back in Liverpool our pastor quite often says whenever you see the word therefore you have to ask what's it there for? In fact just last week he said that very thing. <laughs> so he says it a lot. But that's what you have to ask. Why is therefore there in that, in that sentence? Well it's to make it clear that he is not saying to get right with God, you need to live in a certain way. You need to cut certain things out. He's not saying that if you want to live as a Christian, you're going to become a hermit or, or a monk or a nun or, or go and live on a pole in the middle of the desert. He's not saying to be a Christian in the 21st century, you need to be a member of the Khan crew. So you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't go there and you can't say that, whatever. What he's saying is, because you're forgiven, because of these things in the first four verses I've told you, because you're right with God, because you've been raised with Christ, here is what you need to do. What you need to do, you need to put to death what is earthly in you. What does that mean? Well, the theological word, if you want it, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you anyway, is, is mortification. The first pastor I sat under when I was sort of a teenager, he used to say, Christians, when they hear any word longer than marmalade, they panic. Well, I guess mortification comes into that. I think it's just about longer than marmalade. But we shouldn't need to panic. It may not be a familiar word, but if you're a believer, you have to be familiar with the reality of it. Because it reminds us, first of all, about the commonality of sin. What I mean by that is that we are all the same. That we all struggle with sin. So when I stand here saying, you have got to put to death, what I mean is, we have got to put to death. And not just me, whoever stands at the front. You know, no one is exempt. We are all strugglers with sin. And if you live your life with no fear of failure, with no worry about wickedness, with no regard to rebellion. Then the most likely explanation is that you're a stranger to the grace of God. Because every Christian will struggle with sin. So it's common to us all. Secondly, it reminds us about the reality of sin. You know, sometimes we hear say something to the equivalent of sin is horrible and has terrible consequences. And yet that's completely true. Sin is horrible. It's something we welcome to, to ourselves in a way that we shouldn't. There was a Puritan writer by the name of Thomas Watson. And he said that we welcome sin into our lives like Jacob welcomed Leah into his tent. Now do you know the story of Jacob 
and, and Rachel and Lee, you know, Jacob comes along, and here he is. You know, he's a bit of a tricker, isn't he, Jacob? A bit of a Dell boy, sort of a duck of a diver. And he comes along, and he meets Rachel, and all of his tricks go out the window. He looks over and he thinks, she is the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. He falls absolutely head over heels in love with her. And he goes along to Laban, their father, and says, no, I want to marry Rachel, what do I need to do? And Laban says, oh, fine, just work for me for seven years for nothing, and then you can marry Rachel. And Jacob, the swindler, the tricker, says, fine, I'll do it. And it actually says it in Genesis that those seven years went by like a couple of days because he was so much in love with Rachel. So that's what's happened. And so the seven years are finally up. And here is the time you're waiting for. Here is his wedding day. And the bride walks into his tent and she's got a veil over her face. And he takes off the veil. I remember somebody doing a children's talk when I was a child on this. And saying, instead of gorgeous Rachel, he got gauzy Leah. Now maybe that's a bit harsh on Leah. It does say, it does say she had weak eyes. I don't quite know what that means, but... You know, the one thing he wanted, he thought, this is really what he wanted, he took it off, and it wasn't at all. And that's how we welcome sin into our lives. And, and Thomas Watson says, we need to take off the mask and see it for what it is. It is horrible. And it does have terrible consequences in this life. You know, you look at these two lists that we're going through. All the lives that have been wrecked. Homes that have been split, churches that have been split, communities have been ruined because of these two lists of people not, you know, not taking heed of them. But having said that, we have to also recognise that living the Christian life is more than just resolve, you know, clenching our fist and gritting our teeth and saying, we're not going to do this. Because if that's all it is, then it can only end up in two ways, either depressing failure or a legalistic Conformity. So what do we need to do to put sin to death? Well, I guess we need to also recognise the attraction of sin. There's an old hymn, um, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. I thought I might be the only person who remembers that hymn. But anyway, but there's a, a verse in that hymn which says, Fading is the whirling's pleasure, all is boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. But the point is, he says, fading is the whirling's pleasure. And that's true. But it's still pleasure. There's still an attraction. There's still something which draws us to it. Something which seems to be good, even if it isn't. I was talking last night and said, I can't remember if you used this story before. And I was assured I hadn't, so I'm going to tell you. When I was a little boy... Uh, 10 years of old, 10 years of age. Uh, I was walking to school one day and it was snowing. Now, in Liverpool, it never snows. <laughs> like, I must have had about three lots of snow in my whole life. It never snowed. I was walking along and it was really thick and it was, it was sticking, which is so exciting when you're a 10 year old kid. And we got to school and we were sitting in the first lesson and the headmaster came into the, the class and he came to the teacher and he said, I want you to pick somebody out to do a job for me. It's got to be somebody sensible, somebody you, know, you can trust, somebody you can count on, a reliable young lad. And the teacher looked around the whole of the class, and of course, he didn't pick me, no. But he, 
He did pick out a lad called Paul Weiss, who was my best mate. And, and he came out, and the headmaster said, you can pick somebody else, and he picked me. And so we went outside with the headmaster, they didn't know what we were going to do. You know, and he, he said, look, here's a brush, here's a shovel. I want you to clear the yard before first lesson. I think slave labour they call it nowadays. But anyway, that's what he said, that's, that's what I want you to do. So we went out and we started. We started to shovel. And I guess for five or ten minutes we were doing this, and you know, it was fine. And then we thought, well, there's no point two of us doing it. Why doesn't one of us clear and the other one can play? And then we'll swap over. So we did that and didn't play. And then we thought, well, why don't we both play? So for the next hour or so, we, we built a big slide, did a snowman, we threw snowballs at people going past. It was tremendous. Until the bell went for you know, mid-morning break. And the headmaster came out and his face went purple. There was, it wasn't clean at all, there was snow everywhere. And he went mad at us. I mean, what did he expect? We were only kids, weren't we, you know? But we have this, this it's the same with Sydney. There's nothing wrong with playing with snow, but that wasn't why we were there. And there's lots of things in life which are fine, but there's not, nothing wrong with them. But that's not really, really why we're here in this world. And there's this short-term gratification against long-term consequences. And the answer is, we're to seek a greater treasure. You know, John Piper in his book, Desiring God, that, that's the whole point of the book. He says it right in the introduction, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he says, you know, that's just one command, that we, we glorify God when we enjoy him. So when we recognise sin for what it is, what do we do? Verse 5, we put it to death. It's a command, it's a call to engage the enemy. John Owen said, you might know who he is, he was, he was the chaplain to, to Oliver Cromwell. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's how serious it is. It's life and death. And because we've died and risen with Christ, we must act and speak in a certain way. It's not just a figure of speech. It's not just a theological term. It's a living reality. Now, does that sound a bit, I don't know, aggressive, a bit gung-ho, a bit too difficult? Well, of course, you'd be right, it is too difficult. As we reminded last week, there's a power we're given, but it's not our power. It can only be done through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So there's a principle to grasp that we're putting to death earthly sins. There's a principle that the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. Why is this principle so important? Well, because of how God views sin in verse 6. It's because of things like this, says the apostle, that call down the wrath of God. You know, the world would look at these things and say, well, that's no big deal. It would look at the sexual sins in verse 5 and say, well, that's just normal desires. It would look at the, the anger in verse 8 and say, well, that's just you know, the way people behave. We're just venting our feelings. But that's not God's perspective. His wrath is upon us. So because of how God views it, because it's incompatible, verse 7, with your new life. You once walked in these things. You once lived in these things. You once behaved this way. It was your disposition. It was your character. But Christ has changed who you are. So it's impossible to carry on with that behaviour. So there's a principle to grasp. That we're to put to death sin. 
And just to give us, so make sure we ground this, he gives us some practices to shun. And there are two lists, one in verse 5, one in verse 8. The one in verse 5, they're all very linked to the first one, so they're all to do with sexual immorality. And the one in verse 8 are all to do with the damage we can cause with our words. And before we just look quickly at them, there's a common objection that people bring to the Christian faith. They say, well, you know, you Christians, you say you live by this book, but it must be outdated. It was written thousands of years ago. How could it possibly speak to our world today? And then we come to a verse like this. Does our modern world struggle with these things? Of course it does. Is the internet not full of these sorts of things? Of course it is. The Bible's up to date because God hasn't changed and we haven't changed. So what are these practices? Well, verse 5, he talks about our private life. Now I have to confess, this, this isn't the subject I choose to speak. If I was going out speaking to her, oh, this would be a good verse to look at, wouldn't it? You know, Because it's, it's a bit embarrassing, isn't it, really? I remember years ago we did a series, a children's series in, in the church I went to. We used to have a children's talk as part of the, the service. And the pastor said, I've got this great idea to do a series on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to call it the Ten Commandos. Okay? So each week we'd have a story about a different soldier and his adventures. And it would teach whatever the, the, the command was. You know? And I thought, that's great. We had a song. There are Ten Commandos. Everybody should know. It was tremendous. Anyway, we, we started this series. It must have been about week eight or nine. One of the parents came up to me and said, uh, you know these Ten Commandos? He said... They're a bit like the Ten Commandments, aren't they? <laughs> of course it's the Ten Commandments. Anyway, anyway, but when we started the series, you know, we started one Sunday evening divvying up who was going to do which one. And me and my friend who were doing the series with the pastor both said, oh, you can do number seven, we're not going to, you know, we don't want to speak to kids about something like that. So what can we say about this list? Well, first we have to say the Bible isn't against sex. God made us male and female. It's his idea. And also, his rules are not complicated. No sex outside of marriage. And that's it. Simple. So what is on this list? First of all, the first word he uses, that, that's sexual immorality, is the word pornea. Is the Greek word for where we get the word pornography. Uh, it's a catch-all word. It's any sort of misconduct in this area. That's what it means. Then he says, Impurity. And that's slightly wider than pornea, because that's about our minds. And then he talks, the next word is passion, maybe a better translation, would be lust. And then there is evil desire. Now, evil desire can mean all sorts of things. But in this context, you know, he's talking still on the same, the same subject. And finally, he says, covetousness. And you might think, well, that's a bit of a strange one to finish with. But it's not really. Covetousness is wanting something that's not rightly ours. It's putting our own desires before God's demands, which is idolatry. And if that's what's controlling my actions, if what I want is what matters, then I'm taking God off the throne and I'm putting myself there. And it may be difficult and it may be painful, but we have to get rid of it. We have to put it to death, those desires. That's in our private life. 
I think the second list we could say are in our public life. Because he's talking about our mouths. And isn't it in the way we speak that betrays most what is in our hearts? There's anger. Now that's not talking about sort of sudden bursts of anger. That's talking about having this settled disposition. This heart like a, a roaring furnace. Wrath, that's talking about outbursts. About eruptions. You know, there's all sorts of rages, aren't there? Say, you know, road rage and trolley rage and air rage and everything else. And malice, what does that mean? That means speech that expresses ill will, that's nasty, that's hateful. Slander. The old authorised version had the word blasphemy there. It's the opposite of praise. It's words used to cause damage to someone's reputation. And obscene talk. Often obscene talk is a result of, of, of anger or malice. So where's that list? Well, it's not a very nice list. There's not good things on there. But you know, I read, I read a man called John Woodhouse on these, uh, these verses. What he said struck me. He said, The Christian view on how we are to speak is no less bizarre in our pagan world than our view of sex. It's only that the pagan world is more obsessed with sex and so it notices our weirdness there more. The very idea that speech is not for putting others down, is not for expressing frustrations, is not for lashing out, but rather for building others up, expressing kindness, turning attention away from ourselves, is as strange to an unbelieving world as anything the Christians believe about sex. So in other words, this is something radical. And doing this isn't easy, is it? And it isn't simple, but it is necessary. You know, there's a story, the book called Touching the Void, if you've ever heard of it. It's about a man who falls down a, a gully when he's out walking. It's a true story. And he gets stuck and he can't get out because his arm's caught in the rock. And he's there for, I think, for a couple of days until eventually he comes to the conclusion the only thing he can do is cut his own arm off. Which is like, but he gets, like, he gets a knife and he cuts through his own arm. And it's horrendous. And he does that and then he rescues himself. And, and this really is, is, is something similar to saying, look, there are things here which are going to be painful to get rid of, but you have to get rid of them. Somebody said this. You have to eliminate from your life as much as possible anything that will cause you to stumble. Here's what it means. If it's a place, don't go there. If it's an image, turn away. If it's a song, don't listen. If it's a book, don't read it. If it's a liquid, don't drink it. If it's a person, part company. The sacrifice might be uncomfortable, even painful. It will most certainly be unpopular. But, and here he quotes from the Sermon on the Mount, it's better you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. So that's what this means. It's cutting aside these things, it's not serious business, but it's got to be done. And finally and lastly, we have the preeminence of Jesus Christ as Saviour. See, how is Christ most revealed in the world? Well, can I tell you, it's through his church, through the way that we, you and I do. So when our private life has been changed, 
when our public life has been changed. We also have to change our church life. That's what verse 9 is talking about. When he talks about don't lie, he says don't lie to one another. Now that's a little, way, you know, a little phrase we see loads of times in the epistles. And very often we don't even notice it's there. But it's talking about the church. Look, we're a body of people, one another. You know, we live in an age of expressive individualism where everyone's out for themselves. And once again, the Christian faith goes totally against what the world thinks. So what is the command? It's don't deceive, don't pretend, don't wear a mask with one another. Remember you're part of the body of Christ, so it's foolish to lie to each other. You know, the, the church father, John Christensen, said, if you, your eye sees a snake, it doesn't tell your foot it's a snake, uh, a stick. Of course it doesn't, because the eye and the foot are working together. They're part of the same body. But into the modern idiom, you know, if you go rooting around the back of your fridge and found something that's been there for maybe a long time, you think, well, I'll taste it, and it tastes a bit funny. You don't think, oh, it's fine, I'll just swallow it. No, you spit it out. Because your taste buds are part of your body. And your new self, verse 10, is being renewed, not simply as individuals, but after the image of its creator. You're back in chapter 1. Paul says in verse 28, we proclaim Christ. Why? Well, it's for warning of everyone. It's for teaching of everyone. It's so that everyone can be mature. And that's why he says, right in the last verse, that the divisions that might be significant elsewhere are of no effect in the church. If you're a Greek or a Jew, a highbrow Greek or a religious Jew, it doesn't matter. Circumcised or uncircumcised, you know, that caused a lot of trouble in the early church. That doesn't matter. A barbarian or a Scythian, you know, to the Greeks, everyone was a barbarian. He wasn't a Greek. But the Scythians were like the barbarians, barbarian. They were the worst of the worst. Whether you're a slave or whether you're free. You know, who was listening to this letter when it was first read out? Well, there was Philemon. He was, he was a slave owner. He was sitting in the congregation. And there was Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, who delivered this letter. And all these groups would have been in this little church. You know, the modern world talks about diversity as though they've thought it up. It's been in the church for a long time. So why do these things not matter? Because Christ is all, and Christ is in all. So when we meet a brother or sister in Christ, it doesn't matter where they're from or, or what their particular persuasion of Christianity may be. If they believe in Christ, they're a brother or sister in Christ. And that's it. And the preeminence of Christ is one of the themes of this whole letter. And really what this passage finishes with is this reminder that knowing Christ and living for him really is the only thing that matters. So I close with prayer. Okay, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that it is only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ that we can stand as forgiven, stand as righteous in your sight. And Father, we confess that we fail you in many areas. We confess that we are not the people we ought to be. But Father, we pray you would give us your grace to put to death those sins that will often return to us, will often haunt us. 
You would help us each day to renew our efforts, to renew looking only to the Lord Jesus. Help us to do this, we pray, in Jesus' name.